Good morning. Welcome once again. So we are, uh, once again, we're continuing our study in the book of Mark. And you'll remember uh, that last week we, there was a gap. And I even had some people come up and ask me, uh, are you planning on skipping this passage? Because it's a hard passage. Maybe you were planning on skipping it. I was not. And I, I think I mentioned it last week. Uh, we're coming back to it today. Uh, the whole section of chapter 3 deals with this idea of the family uh, of God. And, and, and the, the parts that we looked at last week really focused on our sort of part being what it means to be part of the family of God. What it means to be united to Christ. This week, I, the focus is more on the, what you might call, uh, the nuclear family, the, 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 the instituting family, the, the, uh, the, the source family. That is, the triune uh, living God, the Father, uh, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Godhead, three in one. And so that's what we're going to focus on. Uh, there are some challenging aspects in this text, and we'll touch on those. We'll look at them. Um, but I don't want us to lose sight of the glory of the triune Godhead. So with that, let's uh, go ahead and read the passage of Scripture. Uh, it's found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 22 to 30. Mark, uh, chapter 3, uh, 22 to 30. You can turn there in your Bibles or uh, the bulletin. You can turn there as well. Hear God's word. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. Stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. And then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We know that it shows us the glory of Christ, and yet there are hard words in it. And so we ask that you'd help us to understand and show us uh, more clearly the hope of the gospel. Uh, We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, In June of... 1858, the Republican candidate for the U.S. Senate, Abraham Lincoln, stood up in the Illinois State House and said, A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the Union to be dissolved, I do not expect the House to fall. But I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. Of course, these prescient words actually lost him the bid for uh, state, uh, U.S. Senate. 
against his rival, Stephen A. Douglas, a Democrat who wanted to maintain the status quo of a divided North and South. Yet in the end, those words would be forever remembered when the president, when then President Lincoln sought by force through war to preserve the union and so become all one thing and so abolish slavery. Lincoln, of course, was quoting Jesus here in the Gospels when he said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. But Lincoln and Jesus both applied this maxim, a statement that was a universal truth in differing ways to two different subjects. Lincoln to our nation and Jesus to the household of Satan himself. While Jesus directly applies this maxim to the household of Satan, I would argue that he also makes a statement about the very union of the Godhead. We have before ourselves a pretty difficult text, right? There's things about unforgivable sins. It's not a topic that is comfortable. But I think as we study it, I don't want us to lose sight of this most basic truth, the Godhead. Three in one stands eternally. This may not sound like anything very earth shattering, that God is eternal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit united three in one for all eternity. But that's exactly what it is. It's a earth shattering union of Father, Son, and Spirit that binds the strong man. We'll see that in a bit and is able to deliver us from evil. Nothing, nothing can divide and conquer our triune God. Not the cross, not the grave, not hell itself. The Godhead, three in one, stands forever. Not so our nation. Stands together for a time. But it, like all nations, is not eternal. There is one kingdom, one God that stands forever. And I want to consider this idea in three parts. We're going to look at it in three sections. And we'll come back to this this concept uh, of this oneness of this triune God. But we're going to get there slowly throughout the sermon. First, I want to look at this concept of divide and conquer. Sort of the the other side of the... The coin. Um, and then I want to look secondly at this idea of the stronger man, the stronger man, because we see this little parable here in the middle of the of the passage that talks about the strong man being bound. And I want to talk about the stronger man. And then finally, we'll come back and bring it back around to the glory and power of this triune and living God who is eternal and stands forever. So let's start with divide and conquer. This is another maxim, right? Uh, similar to a house divided, uh, won't stand. And they go hand in hand. It's just spoken by those who desire the house to fall, right? It's the other side of the coin. If they look at a strong house that is solid, they think if we can divide that house, and then we will bring the house down because a house divided doesn't stand. Or another way to put it is we will divide and conquer. It's 
easier to defeat. In our text, we're introduced again to the scribes. They've come up before. Scribes were the legal experts of the day. If the Pharisees were the ones who set the tone of life in Israel, of how one is to live in accordance to the law of God, the scribes are the ones who could give you the grounds, right? They were the the experts uh, as to why certain practices were prescribed and what one could do. Um, uh, in, 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 in accordance to the law. And they could have passed official judgment. This is in accord. This is out of accord. And they had come from Jerusalem to assess the situation going on in Galilee with this miracle worker and teacher, Jesus. They were in a bind. They were in a, a tough spot. And here was the bind. Clearly the works of Christ could not be refuted. They were there in front of everyone. People had streamed in from all over the region to to be healed, to have the demons that were within them exercised. They they had seen the power of this miracle worker, and those works could not be refuted. If they could be, that would be the, you know, if they could say, he's just a charlatan, look behind the curtain, here's the truth of the reality, that would be simple. But demons were being cast out. People were being healed before their very eyes. And so these scribes, they faced a conundrum. On the one hand, if they acknowledged the powerful miracles in any way as good things, then they would have to acknowledge that this man was from God, that his prophetic word was to be followed, that that what he said was true, and they had to listen to him and obey him. That That was the, they didn't want to do that. And so it was this all or nothing prospect. Either, either he is indeed who he claims to be or he's somebody to be destroyed. But in the middle of this, we have this powerful manifestation that is going on. And if they simply denied what their very eyes were seeing, they would lose credibility. For everyone present bore witness to the reality of what was happening. People from all over would say, no, this actually I was an eyewitness. I was healed. My friend was relieved of this evil spirit. And so they came up with a third way. If we can call his works evil, then we will have the moral ground to get rid of him. Jesus would then be perceived as a threat not only to life in Israel, but to the Roman authorities. They didn't want... Uh, somebody going around disrupting peace in their uh, province. And so they would also have opportunities. So if we can call his works evil, their goal was to divide the conquer. They wanted to divide Jesus from his works. The works on the face of them were good, right? People were being healed. Demons were being dispossessed. The people were being dispossessed of demons. But can their works really be good? Can his works really be good if the source is evil? Right? We're going to divide Jesus from the work that if they could convince his followers and all these people that the source was evil, then they wouldn't necessarily seek him out. That was maybe the first way they tried to divide him from the work and define the source as evil. And therefore, we can then move to um, the getting away from the good that he's doing. So that's one aspect. The second thing is they would divide Jesus from the people themselves. As much as people wanted to be healed, 
They wouldn't want to be healed at the expense of their souls. In verse 30, we're told that they were saying that Jesus had an unclean spirit. An unclean spirit. So to touch Jesus, therefore, would make you unclean. To be in proximity to him, to listen to him, would risk your standing in life in Israel, in the synagogue, and in the temple. Their goal was to divide people, to push people away from Jesus, to show him to be evil. Finally, and the most significant thing, and we'll come back to this at the end, they were trying to divide him from God himself, particularly from the Holy Spirit. They were trying to argue that what was in Jesus was evil. And we'll come back to this point. But they were arguing that the powerful works were not from the power of the Holy Spirit, but were rather demonic. And in this way, they tried to undermine his power and his authority. And if they could convince people that he was not of God, but was in league with Satan, they would be able to arrest him and do away with him. The prophet Isaiah said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. As we were reciting the Nicene Creed, I, I just noted that it says, Very God of very God, light of light. Right? There's a sense in which those light and darkness don't go hand in hand. They're, they're opposites. They could call evil good to put darkness for light and light for darkness. The scribes were calling good evil here. That's clear. But I was thinking about this and I was thinking, isn't that the way of it? What do I mean? Isn't that the way that we that we are prone to to see the works of God, to see the laws of God, to see the wonders of God, to see them and to reject them? Right? I mean, isn't that the, the, the power of sin and the fall? Satan tempts Adam and Eve in the garden by convincing them that God meant to withhold good from them. Right? To withhold something from them. To put it in the negative. To do that. God wanted to do you harm by not giving you access to this tree. To call evil good and good evil. Calling good, evil, and evil good is as old as Satan himself. It is at the root of our rebellion as man. And I would say that more and more we find ourselves as Christians forced to wear some cultural scarlet letters of our society where we call something good and the society calls it evil. And I just want to say that's okay. It's okay, it's okay to wear that. It's part of our call to follow Jesus. In some ways, it's a glorious badge of honor, right? It's okay to wear that. We don't feel like it's okay in the face of culture, but it is. It's an honor to suffer with Christ. And as sad as it is to see how the culture calls good evil and evil good, what distresses me more than that, that's distressing to look at the world and its corruption. But what distresses me more is that as believers, we start to get confused on the issues. We start to become uncertain and unsure about which way is up and which way is down. What is light and what is dark? What is good and what is evil? Friends, it is the evil one's desire to divide and conquer. 
to separate us from the works and words of our Lord. To drive a wedge between us and the Lord Jesus Christ. To divide the household of God. That's his aim. So there's a necessity for us, I think, here when we consider this reality to be aware, right? To be, to be honest, to call good good and evil evil, to recognize what's going on, to be awake to the spiritual battles that are being fought. This is not a battle of flesh and blood. And this is a text all about spiritual battles. Jesus is casting out demons. The evil one is using these scribes to cast out Jesus. Our lives are being fought over. And Satan will take whatever measures necessary so that we might be tempted to call evil good and good evil and drive us away from our Savior. There's an attempt by the evil one to divide and conquer, but there is a stronger man. This is my second point. There's a stronger man. Jesus confronts the scribes. Notice here in the text that he calls them to himself. I find that I just I love that scene because here they are saying, oh, he's filled with an evil spirit. But then he says, come here. And what do they do? Well, they come to him because when the Lord of glory calls you, you come. They obey. You see, they don't have final say. Nor do they have any real authority. But Jesus does. He begins by pointing out to them the ridiculous nature of their statements. Right? They, of course, uh, had suggested that he was possessed himself by Beelzebub. Now, we only see one other reference to Beelzebub in Scripture. If you go all the way back to 2 Kings uh, 1, there was a king. And this king of Israel was in trouble. And so he cries out to his advisors to go consult with Baal. The God that we see with the Canaanite God, Baal, Zebub, um, the God of Ekron, who he's described of in 1 Kings. Um, And then he gets in trouble from the prophets and from the Lord. But he told his advisors to go do that. Baal, Zebub, can literally be translated Lord of the Flies. And that's kind of an interesting topic altogether, right? To think about Baal, Zebub, that idea of Lord of the Flies and... Everyone doing what's right in their own eyes on that island with all those boys. But that's a whole other thing. Um, But there's one other reference in the pseudepigraphal work, which I mentioned last week in the Testament of Solomon. And not not scripture, but it refers to Beelzebul. It's a little different, but commentators think that there's a that the Beelzebub piece was a way for Israelites to mock the God of this god Baal is a bull. Baal's a bull was, I think it's like the Lord Prince or the Lord, um, something like that. It was a sort of a, just kind of a generic title for a god. But, but it was thought that maybe the Israelites had changed the last uh, consonant in order to make fun of this god, that he's actually only Lord of Flies that swarm over dung, right? So, you know, you get a picture of that. But, but either way, in, in this... Uh, in this pseudepigraphal work that I mentioned last week in the Testament of Solomon, it refers to Beelzebul as the prince of demons, which is what we see here in our text. Beelzebub, or Beelzebul, is the one who is possessed by the, he is the prince of demons. 
Well, whatever demon that the scribes, it seems as though that this is in the background anyway of the people uh, in, in this time and in, in, uh, uh, of Jesus, that, that this was, there was this idea of this prince of demons, Beelzebul or Beelzebub, and popular in Jewish thought at the time. But whoever this demon of, of was being ascribed to Jesus, it's completely ridiculous, completely ridiculous. And Jesus points it out. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, it cannot stand. It makes no sense that Jesus, possessed by a demon, would cast out other demons. It would be the ruin of the kingdom of hell. doesn't make any sense. But it is Jesus' next words that are most powerful. It's this little mini parable here that explains the truth of what's going on. Jesus is not possessed by a demon. He's not Satan against himself. Rather, he is the Lord of glory who has come to plunder the house of the strong man. It should be noted here that the evil one is a strong man. So strong, in fact, he has power and authority. He is a ruler over a kingdom and he has subjected a world, the world to himself. And there is for those caught in bondage in by this strong man, there is no freeing ourselves from the captivity. The demon possessed person at Jesus time could not escape it. He couldn't cast the demon out himself. He was in bondage and neither can we. Escape this body of death, as the Apostle Paul calls it. But the glorious truth is Jesus is the stronger man. Jesus paints a picture that is part of every action movie ever. Um, Here is a house guarded by a menacing, fearsome beast of a man. No one is getting in. That is until the hero steps in. The champion the stronger man, the only one who can save the day. I, I have to admit, uh, as I, in my adulthood, I, I have come to like superhero shows and movies, almost despite myself. Like, I thought, these are silly. Why am I watching these? And then I, I watch them, and I'm like, these are silly. But there's something about it that I enjoy. Anyway, it's a strange thing, but that's just the way it is. While these shows are occasionally punctuated by heroic actions, most of the time the superheroes have all the foibles of humanity. They are like Greek gods of old. They're fatally flawed and they're just a little lower than humanity or a little above humanity or however you want to put it. Not so with Christ. He isn't a superhero. He isn't just a stronger man. He is the Lord of glory, the only true and living God, the only one who can deliver us from our bondage and sin, and the only one who can set us free. What the people and the scribes were witness to with the casting out of demons was the demonstration of the power of the living God through the miraculous working of the Son, who is not indwelt by a demon, but who was anointed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You see, there is no power of hell that can stand in the way. The Lord Jesus binds the strong man and then indeed plunders the house. And guess what, believer? 
You are the plunder. What a thought. I'm plunder? Well, let me put it into another word. You are the treasure. You're the treasure. There is one who is stronger and mightier than all the powers of hell. And you are a treasure that was once lost, but has now been found. Friend, do you feel lost and bound in a life that you just don't know how to escape from? You're full of brokenness and sin. Friend, there is one who is stronger than your sin, who can set you free, who sees you as his treasure more precious to him than his very life. I stated at the beginning that my main point was for us to see the Godhead three in one, which stands forever. And yet I've spent time talking about seemingly unrelated things. First, the evil one's goal to divide and conquer. Secondly, to see Jesus as this one who is the stronger man. But my hope is that in this last point, I'll pull these ideas together and that we'll be left worshiping at the throne of the triune and living God. And this is my final point. I want us to see the glory and power of this triune Verses 28 and 29 can be disturbing. They seem to fly in the face of all the gracious gospel words that are uttered here and elsewhere. Here is words that say uh, that cause many Christians to doubt their own faith and to worry and fret over their standing with God. What do you mean there's an unforgivable sin? Is it possible that I've committed this unforgivable sin? I've committed a lot of sins in my life and maybe I've gone too far. Maybe the Lord won't forgive me. Maybe you're there. So here it is. These words, they get, they get stuck. We, now we're stuck in this hole and they can be a distraction to this bigger idea, this bigger point in order that we, that we don't lose sight of it. I'm going to restate it. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the triune and living God who breaks the power of sin and hell. And redeems us from the pits of hell and from the bondage that we're in in our sin. And he is glorious and eternal. And he brings us into his family. Calls us his own. So don't lose sight of that. Even as we talk about this unforgivable sin. And my hope is that even as as we look into it, that it won't be a distraction. But actually that these words, these words of warning and judgment will actually come across as encouragement to us. We'll see how if that's possible, as strange as it might seem. So what's going on? First, uh, it should be noted that Jesus begins by saying truly. Or another way to translate it would be amen. Now, maybe that's not remarkable to you. Jesus says it quite a bit. It's truly, truly, I say to you. Truly, I say to you. Over and over again, we see this throughout scripture. Um, but what's, what is remarkable is Jesus is the only one that does this. Amens come at the end of a statement and are said by the people affirming and confirming the true thing that has been said. But Jesus begins with a statement, 
Amen. Truly, this thing that I'm saying to you is self-authenticated. It is by the very authority that I have that I'm declaring this thing to you. In other words, he is saying, I have the right to define what is true and good. And what I'm about to say comes from God alone. So what is the truth claim? Well, the truth claim is this. All sins will be forgiven the children of men, whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. These words were meant to stop the scribes in their tracks right there. They were meant to be a a big red sign. Stop what you're doing. Stop. And in some way, it's meant for all of us to do the same. But in stopping, we ought not to lose sight of the very first things that he has said. As we jump right to forgiveness is never Right? That's, those words just stand out to us because we think, is that possible? But the very first things that he said, all sins will be forgiven, the children of men. Whatever blasphemies they are. In other words, all types of sins, even blasphemies, are sins which our Father in heaven will forgive. I have known too many believers who are tortured in their soul because they think their sin is beyond God's forgiveness. There was a, a friend of mine. Uh, he was at my church, a single man, and he went to a seminary that was right down the road. He was studying for ministry. Love the gospel. And we got together regularly. We would meet. And we had the same conversation every single week. Rob, how do I know I'm not Saul? How do I know I'm not Judas? How do I know I haven't committed these unforgiving sins? When I look at my life, all I see is all my sin, all the brokenness. And break down every week. Remind him of the gospel. So you don't miss these words. All Sins. I think we can take great comfort in that. Friends, if you have struggling with besetting sin and you feel as though you've done it for the millionth time and that you've filled up God's forgiveness, don't forget what he said to his disciples when they asked, how many times should we forgive? And he said, seven times they, they asked. And they said, 70 times seven. Why? It's a sign of perfection. Keep forgiving because that's the way our Heavenly Father is. There's a, there's a song, and I'm not going to quote it well, but it, it goes something like, There is no sin that I have done. I'm going to forget it, so I'm just going to leave it there. But that the Lord can't forgive. Take comfort in this. The strong man of Jesus Christ came to deliver us from this body of death. What does Paul say? Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus, my Lord. Take comfort. But we do have to address, what is this unforgivable sin? 
What makes it so heinous? Well, it's the sin of calling the Holy Spirit evil. It's a blaspheming the Holy Spirit, saying that the Holy God, the triune God, the Spirit of God is evil and the works are evil that come from Him. But it's an interesting thing because it is those particularly, I think, those who know and see that it is God at work and yet ascribe it to the evil one. And another thing is, I think sometimes we can think, what if we slip up? What if I slip up and I just by mistake say something in anger or frustration or I don't know, and, and I slip up? And, am I guilty of that? And what was me? I've, you know, I've said terrible things of God. No, this is not that. This is a rebellious, hardened heart that is opposed to God himself. It is, it is the, the, the long process of hardening one's heart to God that when we see God and we see his works... And we, we look at the glorious things he's done. We then ascribe it to the evil one. We blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And friend, if you fear that you've committed the sin and you're worried about your soul, you have not committed the sin. Your heart is not hardened. Your conscience is stricken. And friends, that's a sign of grace. That's a sign that God's spirit is at work in you. What makes it so evil to do this? Well, I I think we have to take our context into consideration here. You see, it fails to recognize God as God. It fails to recognize his holiness, his glory, his power. It fails to see his mercy and his love. And rather than face the demonstration of his power and glory and love, we instead call it evil. That would be the sin. And particularly notice who it is that Jesus is addressing. Scribes. The religious leaders. Those who would claim to be close to God. The ones who were closest to the sin. It's a stern warning to the religious. Do not harden your hearts. Don't do it. But don't forget, a hardened, a repentant heart is not a hardened heart. Well, one of the things that I think I've tried to strike is this, this, this reality of our own lives. That in many ways, we are a house divided against ourselves. Paul wrestles like this. I've quoted it a few times in, the, in, the, in his letter to the Romans. I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things that I want to do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? In many ways, we are a house divided. And we can feel at many times that because of our division in our heart and our soul that, that we are crumbling And falling, but here's the glorious good news is that Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, the one who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who is sent by the Father of lights, the one who has come to redeem a people for himself, is not divided. He's not divided, and more than that, he has all the power of heaven to break the power of hell. And he comes in and he rescues and he redeems. And he sets us free. 
And he takes his spirit and he presses it into our hearts. And he says, I'm going to work in this heart and I'm going to make it new. And I'm going to transform you from one degree of glory to another. Till that day when I come again and you return to me and you are transformed and you too are no longer a divided house. What a glorious hope. And it's a sure hope because our hope is in the triune living God. And here's the the beauty of the gospel. This glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit anointed and indwelt. Goes to the cross. And in the mystery of the cross, he is forsaken by the Father. There is a sense in which it seems as if the house is divided, the evil one has won. And yet in that very moment, the strong man is bound for all eternity, only to be sent into his own fiery pit of hell. And nothing, 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 could stop the Lord Jesus Christ who broke the power of sin and death and rose again from the dead and brings us home to glory. Friends, don't lose heart in a chapter like this, but look and see the wonder and majesty and power and love and mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ and the Heavenly Father and in the Holy Spirit, the three in one, who calls us to himself, unites us with himself through his spirit, through the Lord Jesus Christ, and calls us into that eternal family. What a glorious hope we have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.